Welcome to episode 29, Eating Disorders, Understanding the Basics of the Most Life-Threatening Mental Health Disorders, by Julie Agajanian, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, from Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. Hi everyone, my name is Julie Agajanian and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and also a certified eating disorder specialist. I've been working exclusively with eating disorders as a clinician and a supervisor for the past 11 years at Center for Discovery's residential treatment programs and I also have a private practice in Los Alamitos, California. Um, I got into the field when I was working with preteens with severe behavioral disorders in a group day treatment-like setting. So uh, a lot of them had explosive disorders and ADHD and bipolar disorder. So working with a whole group of them at a time was a lot of breaking up fights and chairs being thrown at my head, being kicked in the shins and spit on. So it was a lot of crisis intervention that I was doing on a daily basis and was pretty stressful. It also wasn't anything that I could personally relate to. I've always been a rule follower, a people pleaser. So I had a hard time really relating to having those kinds of urges to engage in that behavior. And so at the time I had saw a documentary on HBO that was called Thin, and it was about residential treatment for eating disorders. And they had gone in and uh, done a documentary about what is happening day to day with these clients, both adults and adolescents. And I was immediately fascinated by the insight and the depth that these clients were able to bring into session and the transformative work that those therapists were able to do with them. And and I could also relate to them being highly sensitive, having that people-pleasing nature, and they were really just using the eating disorder as a way of coping with their overwhelming emotions. So um, from that point, I immediately got into the eating disorder field and just learned as I went along. So I'm going to start today with some statistics. Uh, Up to 30 million people of all ages, races, ethnicities, and genders suffer from an eating disorder in the U.S. Every 62 minutes, someone dies from an eating disorder, which is why eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And so that's for a couple of reasons. So, of course, eating disorders are going to affect you physically, and it can take a toll on your heart, and there are many physical factors that play into an eating disorder as it is a medical issue. But also eating disorders tend to really isolate people and make them depressed and hopeless to the point that many people end up completing suicide as a result of the eating disorder. Um, 90% of American women are dissatisfied with their appearance. And so when we're asked why we think that is, a lot of people in the eating disorder field think that the media has a lot to do with it. So there is a lot of money to be made off of making women feel badly about the way that we look. And not just women, men too. Uh, That if you are looking at magazine ads or commercials and you're feeling like you're just not measuring up, you are more likely to spend money on that eye cream or that gym membership or that outfit that might make you feel a little bit better about yourself. And one example that I really like to use to portray this is that on the island of Fiji, they just got access to television in the year 1995. And so as soon as they got access to it, they had these people come in and do these studies of how people would be affected. So they found that the incidence of purging among teen girls had gone from 3% right before they got television to 15% in the three years following. 
and they found that comparing themselves to the people on Melrose Place and 90210 at the time was on, they were kind of uh, going from a culture that used to be uh, saying you've gained weight would be a compliment in that culture to then really trying to manipulate their weight down in order to model what they were seeing as the ideal body type on TV. Um, according to the NIDA website, 81% of 10-year-olds are afraid of becoming fat. And again, we kind of relate this back to the media, uh, just the talk of being fat, the magazines you see at the check stands that say, you know, who has the best beach body and who has the worst beach body. And back in the day, I know even when I was growing up, those types of topics just weren't talked about so openly. It wasn't uh, so common that you would just comment on someone's body or have such a focus on thinness. And nowadays, that is very much an obsession of our culture. And even 18% of boys are highly concerned about their weight and physique. So what is an eating disorder? On the surface, an eating disorder is just dangerous behaviors that involve abnormal behavior around food, exercise, and weight manipulation. But on a deeper level, an eating disorder is so much more than that. It is a coping skill. It is a distraction. So let's say you are living in a very intense and uncomfortable family situation. We've had clients say, it's so much easier to focus on my weight and to sit there and count all of the calories I'm eating all day and to weigh myself 25 times a day and restrict food because all of that is this big project that I take on that takes up so much of my mind and my focus that I don't have to think about how much my parents are fighting or I don't have to think about the abuse that I'm going through. So um, so this is really a big distraction and coping tool. Also, just the function of starvation is going to numb you out from the world and from your emotions. So if you are someone who, like many of our clients, feel their feelings really intensely, they're a highly sensitive person, that process of restriction is going to feel like it's helping them with that. Um, it also can serve as a communication skill. So this is a disease that in some situations is something that you can actually see on a person if they are extremely underweight. Uh, so that could be a way of communicating to their family or to their loved ones, to their partner, hey, something is not right with me and I don't know how to communicate my emotions to you and it might be too hard for me to do that. So I'm showing you through my behavior, through my body, that something is really wrong and I hope that you can take care of me. I hope you can meet my needs and, and ask me what's going on or just get me help. I know that in graduate school, I only had one lecture on eating disorders and what I really took away from that was the professor just saying, well, it's all about control. And it's just so much more than that. I guess that's a pretty simplistic way of putting it. But it is really about coping. And so for them, it feels like a whole set of coping skills they're using. And so our job as the clinician is to understand how did this eating disorder come about? And instead of immediately pathologizing it and seeing it as this evil thing that they need to kill and destroy and get rid of, that would be pretty terrifying for someone who has seen this as, in a way, a lifesaver or something that has been their their best friend or their rock to rely on. And so instead, we need to get curious and compassionate and find out how does this eating disorder feel like it's helping you? What is it helping you to, um, to communicate? And how do you feel when you're engaging the behaviors? Because there's probably some important clues there that the client needs to incorporate into 
their identity or into their life, but in a positive way. So for example, I've had a lot of teenage girls tell me that the eating disorder helps them to feel more like uh, confident or that it's their way of saying no to people because they're such a people pleaser. They just go along with everything. So I, I've had some clients say, well, maybe if I could just wear some combat boots or be more of a badass, quote unquote, then I wouldn't need the eating disorder as a way of doing that for me. So we're really trying to find out what is the job of the eating disorder so that we can uh, achieve that goal in a more direct way that doesn't affect the client's health. So let's move on to the clinical definition of the first eating disorder we're going to talk about, which is anorexia nervosa. So according to the DSM-5, anorexia is restricting food, which leads to a significantly low body weight. And so that doesn't define exactly how low, it's really just up for interpretation of whatever the clinician considers low, or in some situations, just the loss of a significant amount of body weight. So that's something we see a lot is someone losing a hundred pounds in a year. And even though they still might be at a normal body weight, uh, they could be experiencing the cognitive decline of an eating disorder or many health issues. And so they would still be receiving anorexia diagnosis. Along with this definition, they have an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, even when they are considered medically underweight. So this kind of goes along with this obsession with thinness and also distortion. So how they're seeing themselves in the mirror is much different than what their family is seeing, what their doctors are seeing that they literally see their image in a distorted way. So you will see them pinching their skin where there's like no fat there at all. And they're saying, see, look at this, I'm fat. I'm even fatter than you. And even though, you know, technically you may weigh more than the client, don't fall into that trap of telling them your weight and, and battling them. You really just have to understand that they are distorted in their perception and gently point out that, yes, the eating disorder makes you extremely obsessed with body size and comparing to others. And in other words, how is that working for you? Because that really causes a lot of anxiety in the client. And so we shouldn't be fueling the fire by trying to rationalize or battle these thoughts. Um, so there's different types of anorexia. There's specifiers. So there is the restricting type, which is just um, restricting your intake on a daily basis to a very low amount. And then there's the binge eating purging type. So a lot of people will look at that and say, well, why would there be a binge eating purging type of anorexia? Wouldn't you just call that bulimia? So the difference is, is if you have that significantly low body weight, that's when you would be considered anorexia binge purge type. So if we think about the types of images that are out there in the world versus what reality is. Um, so the average woman, according to the NIDA website, is 5'4 and weighs 166 pounds. However, the average female model in the U.S. is 5'10 and weighs 107 pounds. So by those standards, that model would be considered a very underweight, would meet the typical criteria for anorexia, would most likely not be having her menstrual cycle because of her low weight. Yet this is the images that we are bombarded with in the media as beauty and the ideal, but so far off from, you know, what the average woman is. And, you know, along with this example, I also talk about back in the late 90s, there were 
these graduate students that did the study on the Barbie doll. I'm sure you've heard of it, that uh, if Barbie was a real woman, she would be six foot nine and her tiny little ankles couldn't support her weight. So she would have to walk on all fours. Her neck would be so small that it couldn't support her abnormally large head um, and that she would only have uh, room in her in her stomach or in her bowels for half of a liver and a few inches of intestine. So she would end up dying of chronic diarrhea. Hope nobody's eating lunch while they're listening to this. So um, again, something that a lot of us played with growing up is a Barbie doll and looked up to being like Barbie and having her house and car. However, not at all a realistic uh, image of a woman. Even G.I. Joe, there was uh, somebody who compared the G.I. Joe of the 1960s versus the 2000s and found out that the bicep size had doubled on the G.I. Joe and the chest measurement had increased by 38% and just all of this overly defined musculature and not very realistic looking. Um, So... Even boys and men are being in the situation of uh, unrealistic standards that's pushing them to some disordered behaviors. Okay, now we're going to talk about bulimia nervosa. So this is a criteria for this is eating a large amount of food in a short period of time while experiencing a perception of having a lack of control over the eating. So long story short, we're talking about a binge. So uh, the person feels like at times that maybe they don't want to be engaging in it, but they're feeling that lack of control. And then along with that is recurrent compensatory behaviors to prevent weight gain. So it could be purging by vomiting, but it's also considering purging if you are uh, using laxatives, if you are overly exercising. So you could not be vomiting at all, but still have bulimia nervosa if you are binging. And then let's say you go a few days without eating anything, or you binge and then you exercise for five hours. So these are all considered bulimia. And so this binge purge episode must occur at least once a week for three months. And then they also have that body size obsession and distortion. And the thing about bulimia is that there are these chemicals in your brain that are released that produce this calming euphoric effect. And it's very short and temporary, but there is an addictive process to that. And I had a very young client, about 13 years old, who was describing to me one time that although she had a lot of shame about her purging behaviors, how desperate she was to purge, that she would purge in her aunt's front yard because she was just so desperate to get the food out of her so she wouldn't gain weight. She still described the purging behavior as being like a warm bath on a cold winter's day. And just the way that she described that was so powerful to me because it it almost sounded like the way a drug addict would talk about the drugs that they're using, of very romanticizing it and longing for the behavior while also knowing that they wanted to stop the behavior. And... um, And so something that for someone who doesn't engage in purging may think, well, what would what would be so great about throwing up? That doesn't sound appealing. But for someone who is ingrained in this pattern of behavior and has had a payoff of it, which is this sense of coping, this sense of uh, being able to control the intake and output of food and having this chemical effect in their brain there is something that feels really wonderful about it. Okay, so the next one we'll talk about is binge eating disorder. So again, eating a large amount of food in a short period of time, experiencing that lack of control. So the behavior occurs once per week for three months. 
And so in order to be considered binge eating disorder, it has to have at least three of the following. So you need to be eating rapidly, eating until you're overly full, eating when you're not hungry, eating alone due to embarrassment, and feeling guilty or depressed or disgusted afterwards. So a lot of people will joke, people who are not in the eating disorder field, saying, oh, I think I have binge eating disorder. But the key factor that really distinguishes this as a disorder is this final criteria, which is you have to have significant distress regarding the behavior. Um, it's If it just feels like something you like to do, this isn't binge eating disorder. It has to be coupled with this significant level of distress about having this behavior. Okay, and then the final diagnosis we're going to talk about is this avoidant restrictive food intake disorder called ARFID. So this, along with binge eating disorder, was added as part of the DSM-5. And as you listen to the symptoms, you may think that you know someone like this. You may know a kid, like a a six-year-old with these types of behaviors. But again, this needs to be at a very uh, significant level to be considered ARFID. So this is people who are extremely picky eaters. They have a very small range of foods that they're able to eat. So, you know, you hear about a lot of six-year-olds that will only eat like five things, pizza, chicken nuggets, mac and cheese, grilled cheese, uh, things like that. Um, And because of this small amount of foods they're willing to eat, they become significantly underweight, nutritionally deficient, or maybe they're relying on nutritional supplements like Boost or Insure in order to get their caloric needs in. Um, Or maybe they're just impaired psychosocially because they can't eat at other people's houses. They can't eat at school. Like They have to eat in a certain environment with these certain foods that are specific to them. They can't have any other chicken nuggets besides McDonald's chicken nuggets. Um, so the thing about this is it is not attributed to any medical condition. And this disorder is really seen as having two main causes to it. So it could be that someone has a lot of sensory issues related to food. So that's the first one that they've always just had sensory issues regarding textures Maybe they're the kid who feels that tag on the back of their sweater all day and it's driving them nuts, whereas maybe other kids wouldn't even notice it. Uh, They get really turned off by certain smells of food, certain textures in their mouth, even colors. Like there are some kids with ARFID that will only eat white colored foods. And I know I'm saying kids a lot, but it's usually when it first shows up, especially if it's a sensory issue, but this will go on into adulthood. And we have adult clients that come to us saying, I've had this my whole life and now I'm going off to college and I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to eat in a college dorm cafeteria because I can only eat these five foods that my mom makes or that come from this certain restaurant. Um, so it really impairs them psychosocially and affects their quality of life. Okay, so that's the first issue, which is sensory. The second one is uh, any aversive consequence that they've had to eating. So in other words, something traumatic that happened. So this is someone who has maybe choked and it, their, la- their life flashed before their eyes because they thought they were going to die. And so now they won't eat anything that they perceive could be a choking hazard. So maybe they're having all liquids or jello or soup, things like that. Um, or it could be some sort of sexual trauma that happened. It could be that they got a very severe stomach flu after eating a certain type of food. And now they are so petrified that they might throw up that they won't eat anything that resembles that category of food. Sometimes we will do uh, exposure with response prevention, ERP or exposure therapy when it comes to ARFID. And that is usually the go-to intervention for this. 
And so I had a client who was very scared of throwing up. And this caused her to be extremely underweight because she was scared that anything and everything would cause her to vomit. So part of my intervention was to go to the little magic store where they have the little joke items and buy a little pile of fake vomit. And I had her just pin it to her shirt all day. <laughs> and just the exposure of, you know, you know, what if you did throw up? Then what? What would be so terrible about that? Um, and then actually through the process of working with her, she did end up getting the stomach flu and she threw up for the first time in a long time. And she survived and she got through it. Um, and that did actually help her in the long run to battle this idea that it would be the end of the world if she up. Um, the, oh, the final one as far as diagnoses is called other specified or unspecified feeding or eating disorders. So it's just called OSFED. And that's really just anything that doesn't fall into the other categories. So uh, for example, atypical anorexia. So having a significant weight loss but your weight is in a normal range or having bulimia nervosa, but with low frequency that doesn't meet the frequency listed as uh, the bulimia diagnosis. Okay, so let's talk about some psychological characteristics that tend to go along with people with eating disorders. So like I mentioned before, the people with eating disorders tend to be highly sensitive individuals. So as children, they're likely the ones that were labeled as crybabies, that, you know, the, everybody else in first grade is running around having fun and they're in the corner and they're crying because something happened, someone said something to them that just affects them in the way that they can't just brush it off. And there's something that's very beautiful about being a highly sensitive person that, you can read a room really quickly and know exactly what everybody's thinking and feeling and what to say to this person to make them happy. And oop, I better not say this to this person because I know that makes them upset. And so we are a great person to be friends with. We're a great person to have as your therapist. And also the world can feel really overwhelming for highly sensitive people. So uh, because of that, People who are highly sensitive might have a risk factor of developing a couple of things. So one is being a people pleaser because it just feels too overwhelming to say no to someone or to have that feeling that feels like conflict when you say, no, I can't do that or please don't say that to me or that hurt my feelings. That just feels like way too much. So therefore, they're, they're at risk of just agreeing with things, people pleasing, and then that can get to the point where it just feels too much and that you have put too many demands on yourself. And also, when you are a highly sensitive person, you've been brought up in a culture that should that tells you that you should just suck it up and be okay and who cares, you're making a big deal, you're overreacting. You can feel like you are just flawed as a human being. And so because of that, they are trying to feel like, okay, let me do things to make sure I measure up to everybody else. So I will be likable by being people pleasing and also I will try and do things perfectly. So that's where we get into the second factor, which is being perfectionistic. So if I just try and get straight A's and just be a perfect person and never make any mistakes, then maybe I will feel like I can be on the same playing field as everybody else. Um, they're not trying to be better than anyone. They're just trying to feel like they're making up for this sense of being flawed. Um, so... Because of that, you know, the eating disorder plays into all of that is that the eating disorder is a way of trying to be more perfect, more acceptable to society. And the eating disorder also comes in as a way of dealing with that people pleasing nature. It's a way of kind of setting a limit or a boundary around yourself that no one's going to ask you to take care of your five siblings if you are sick with this eating disorder. 
Um, so p- another part that goes along with eating disorders is obsessions. So you will see them really obsessing about food in general. And really, that is a, a biological factor here. So your brain cannot make sense of the fact that you would be purposefully denying yourself food if you had access to it. So your brain goes into this mode like, okay, I guess they're on a deserted island with very little food because they're not eating it. So I need to make them think about food 24-7 so that they go out and search for it. So you will see them thinking about food, collecting menus and recipes, drawing pictures of food, um, cooking for the whole family and all of their neighbors, but not eating it themselves. So you'll see obsessive amounts of like cupcakes and cakes and pastries being made only to be given away. Um, And part of this goes back to the Ansel Keys Minnesota Starvation Study. Uh, back in World War II times. So he had a whole group of healthy men who had no prior eating disorders or disordered eating or no mental health issues that he knew of. And he significantly cut back their caloric intake in order to study how, uh, how this would affect them. And essentially, he just created eating disorders in these healthy men. And they started doing all of these same behaviors that I just talked about as far as collecting the recipes and then having the eating disorder behaviors of taking little tiny bites of food. And then when they did have access to unlimited amounts of food, they were binging on it. They were hoarding all of these spices and eating them and just really bizarre behaviors. And they also found that their personality changed significantly from one MMPI test that they did before the starvation to one during. They had some men that had psychotic episodes. So one man cut off the tip of his finger on purpose. Um, And it got to the point where the people running the study said, oh my gosh, this is getting out of control. We have got to stop the study because we're going to get sued. So they offered to the men, okay, if anybody wants to quit this study, it's fine. You can go home with your family. You will not be punished. And not one man said, uh, volunteered to go home. And so when they asked them after the fact, why didn't you just quit the study? They had these these reasons that were very noble of like, I was doing something for the good of my country and what I was doing was really important. And they described it as like these men had a religious-like affiliation to the study itself. And that is very similar to what you will find in talking to a patient with an eating disorder is that they put so much meaning into what they're doing and see it as so important or like this end goal that they haven't achieved yet that I first have to get to the certain weight or else I'm not done. Even though I can tell you all of these consequences that I'm experiencing as a result of the eating disorder I still haven't achieved the end goal. Um, Let's see. So they will have obsessions, like I said, about food, about their body shape and size, about needing to exercise, needing to stay busy. And so a lot of that can get to the point that it's very difficult to manage. So along with that, you'll see a lot of uh, emotional disturbances that go along with eating disorders. So you'll see an increase in depression and anxiety, irritability. And so, you know, anxiety disorders are highly linked to eating disorders, as is depression. Uh, so, so is self-injurious behavior, especially in adolescence. So there have, there's a study that uh, 49% of the girls hospitalized for their eating disorder were also engaging in self-harm. And um, so that is something that you definitely want to be aware of, that it's a high level of suicidal urges and behaviors and also self-injurious behaviors. Also, substance abuse is highly correlated with eating disorders, especially in adults. Uh, with 50% of individuals with eating disorders also abusing substances. And 
As far as other behavioral features, you'll also notice that many people will continue the eating disorder even after achieving what they might set as an initial goal weight. So usually eating disorders don't start out as eating disorders. They start out as, I want to lose five pounds or I want to tone up. And the process of weight loss can become so addictive, especially for a highly sensitive or very rigid thinking person, that um, it can really spin out of control. So uh, I had another client who was not trying to lose weight, but was in a, a health class that told her that eating this certain number of calories was what she needed. Now, <laughs> the health class teacher was not her personal physician and should not have been saying how many calories any child should be eating, but in being the perfectionistic person she was, she took that advice and that was actually way less than that client needed because she was an athlete. So she ended up losing a significant amount of weight and not really noticing or caring until a neighbor lady who had never really acknowledged her before all of a sudden said, oh my gosh, you've lost weight. Wow, you must have such willpower. You must be doing so many great things. And that just sent her, just launched her right into a very severe eating disorder. So um, that's something that I'm pretty passionate about is having schools stay out of things like monitoring kids' weights, having them weigh in, um, prescribing any type of meal plan or weight loss because they just don't realize how much damage they can do. Um, other behavioral features, you will see them avoiding eating, eating in public because maybe they are ashamed to be seen eating in public with their distorted thoughts. They may be thinking that someone will look at them and say, ew, why is that fat person eating? Even though nobody's thinking that, uh, they see food sometimes as good or bad and just putting them in these black or white categories. And it's not always very predictable what they're going to see as good or bad. That it may be the traditional, you know, vegetables and fruits are good and fats and carbs are bad. But I've also had clients say things like, well, Teddy grams are good because I can count out exactly how many of them will equal 100 calories and I know exactly how many calories I'm getting. Whereas if I'm eating an apple, they come in all different shapes and sizes and I don't know exactly for sure how much I'm eating. You could see them getting very tearful around food. So you you might think that they are being manipulative or being dramatic, but really food gets to a point that it is legitimately a, a paranoia, um, a phobia, that's the word I'm thinking of. It's you have this phobic reaction to food to the point where it makes them tearful, it makes them um, angry, have things that look like tantrums, and they are really panicked and desperate that their, their weight is going to change and there's all of this meaning about what that means about them and or what the consequences will be for them in their life. That they will perhaps be worthless or unloved or unaccepted. And so um, we just have to work with that by just normalizing their fears that this just comes with the territory of having an eating disorder. So it's normal for you to feel this way, but it's also not accurate that these things are going to happen. And so we need to have them exposed to this behavior of eating normally. And then the further they go in recovery, actually the more rational they become, that their body image gets better as they continue in the recovery behaviors of eating normally, not purging, not over-exercising, etc. Uh, some things to look out for that they might uh, have a quick exit following eating, either to vomit or to exercise. So something to just be aware of. They also might have multiple addictions going on with the eating disorder. So whether that be the addiction to substances or to exercise, to self-harm, 
Um, and some clients will act out sexually as a way of feeling validated and accepted that, you know, at least in this moment when I'm with this partner, they are accepting me and my body. And so that feels good. But then there's usually some shame that comes afterwards. You may also see them engaging in online media about weight loss, so also known as thinspiration. So they may be going on pro eating disorder websites or social media where they're learning tips about how to fill up on water or cotton balls and all these dangerous behaviors that um, if they are adolescents, maybe their parents don't even know that they're learning or that they're posting pictures of themselves or uh, looking at pictures of people who are very emaciated and seeing that as their inspiration. Um, some high-risk activities that you should be aware of. So any type of aesthetic activities, so things like ballet, figure skating, gymnastics, modeling, anything like that has a very high risk for an eating disorder because there is such a focus on body shape and size. And even with the coaches making comments that are, you know, you it would be better if you lost weight or something like that. You can't be the lead in the ballet unless you weigh this much. Um, also activities that are highly, uh, focused on speed and constant movement like soccer and cross country, uh, things that are needing to be a certain weight in order to engage in them. So things like wrestling and having to fit into a certain, uh, wrestling class. I don't know the right word. Um, and then, uh, cheerleading in order to be a flyer, you have to be pretty petite. Um, so just some high risk stuff there as well as like I talked about PE health class. So that's probably the most common thing that we see with adolescent clients is uh, them coming from a situation where they had a health teacher or a PE class that actually uh, was the start of their eating disorder because of feedback that was given. And then also just uh, ex engaging in extreme clean eating, so also known as orthorexia, which is not yet a diagnosis in the DSM, but is just referred to in pop culture as just this clean eating phenomenon that's really taken over. And uh, it can be so incredibly restrictive that it is leading to uh, full-blown anorexia. So there are some very serious physical changes that can come about because of an eating disorder. So the National Institute of Mental Health talks about uh, things like amenorrhea. So that is the loss of your menstrual cycle. And when that happens, that can also put you at risk for osteopenia, osteoporosis, and then perhaps infertility. Um, there's also fatigue, hair loss, dizziness and fainting poor sleep, headaches, acid reflux, especially when you're engaging in purging behavior, dehydration. Uh, there's decreased tolerance for cold. So you'll see uh, people in the summertime wearing uh, sweatshirts because they have this lack of insulation due to their low body weight and just an overall low body temperature. Um, so that's what leads to that. They also can have lanugo, which is a fine hair that grows all over their body in order to, again, in order to insulate them. There's muscle and organ atrophy, including your brain. So you can have brain shrinkage, brain damage, because your brain is made up mostly of fat. And so that's shrinking along with everything else. And you'll see people who are severely in anorexia who they used to be super sharp and quick and funny and intelligent and now they're having a hard time processing just two sentences at a time and you're having to talk really slowly and use very basic concepts and then you can really watch them wake up and get back to normal as their brain becomes more refed. Uh, they can also have low blood pressure and low heart rate. And some possible health consequences, uh, one of the most dangerous ones is the electrolyte disturbances. So electrolytes 
carry messages to your heart that tells your heart to keep beating. And so if you are underweight and you're purging, that is like the most deadly combination. So you're purging out these vital electrolytes and that's when you can have very low potassium. And if that's the case, you need to be hospitalized. So that's why if you're taking on a client that has an eating disorder, you need to be very well versed in these medical consequences and be able to work with an entire treatment team of professionals and a physician that's taking regular lab work and doing EKGs and knowing when this person needs to go to a higher level of care. Um, purging can cause tooth erosion from the constant acid coming up. And if a client is going to be engaging in purging, we also tell them don't brush your teeth right afterwards. It might be sound counterintuitive, but all of that acid that just came up, you're then, you know, brushing that in and scraping away that, uh, tooth enamel and, um, bone abnormalities. So I talked about osteopenia. We've had kids as young as 14 with the earliest signs of osteoporosis, so that's an issue. And then, of course, the final health consequence of death, as I talked about in the beginning, which is that high rate of death for eating disorders. Um, so factors that contribute to an eating disorder. So we have a lot of family members, loved ones that come in very nervous that they were the ones that caused this eating disorder. And as far as we know so far, the main issue that causes eating disorders is a genetic predisposition. So Thornton, Mazeo, and Bulick found through twin studies that individuals who are born with certain genotypes are at a heightened risk for developing an eating disorder and that these uh, risks are heritable. And so through that, we're also looking at this temperament issue, so that the temperament of perfectionism and neuroticism and impulsivity and rigidity, obsessive thinking. So really, this is at the heart of all of this. And so it could be that one kid in the family has this certain type of genetic predisposition and that highly sensitive temperament. And they may have all been raised in the same family, but that only that one kid got the eating disorder. So it's not just about how you were raised. It has to do with genetics. Um, now, along with that, uh, there are also certain family dynamics that can um, put you more at risk. So the saying is that genetics loads the gun and then whatever your environment is pulls the trigger for this eating disorder. So um, it could be having to do with any family dynamics, uh, could have to do with any cultural pressure for thinness or teasing that went on in school. I know that is a huge issue for male clients that we have is that they were teased and they were a highly sensitive kid, and that just felt like such a blow to them that they said, never again. I will never have to go through this feeling of being teased. I'm going to be underweight, so I never have to risk feeling this again. It could be uh, that there's a major life change. So maybe their parents are getting divorced, or they went through a significant trauma that made them feel this lack of control. And so the eating disorder is a way of feeling in control over their body or their life, or like I said, just that distraction um, issue. The next thing we'll talk about is like treatment for an eating disorder. So there are several different levels of care starting with just the outpatient level of care where you might encounter this patient. And then from there, they can step up if necessary to an intensive outpatient program a few times a week, a few hours a day where they'll have therapy and a dietitian and some groups. From there, they might need to step up to a partial hospitalization program five days a week, seven hours a day. So many of their meals will be taking place at the program but they're still going home at night. And then uh, the next level higher than that is a residential treatment facility where they are living 24 seven for about 45 to 60 days. 
And then if they have some significant medical issues, like I said, the, the really abnormal lab work that is dangerous or a very low heart rate, so something under 40 for a heart rate, then they may need to be in inpatient hospitalization. So when do you refer to a higher level of care? Well, you're always going to want to be sure that you're getting that full medical workup from a physician and that you are also referring them to a dietitian and a psychiatrist if you're working with a client with an eating disorder. And um, if you are seeing that they are under 90% of their ideal body weight or they've had a significant weight loss, that's when you're going to want to consult about a higher level of care. Also, if their behaviors, their eating disorder behaviors, or their mood symptom, symptoms are getting severe or out of control, then that's probably indicating the need for a higher level of care. And just regardless of their weight, if their symptoms are not improving, then um, you're going to have to make that referral to, to keep yourself safe as far as liability. So you cannot be scared to really just put your foot down and demand that the client seek a higher level of care and don't get into the situation where you're fearing that you're abandoning your client because we see that all too often where we have therapists that are keeping clients that are going lower and lower in weight, becoming more entrenched in their eating disorder and less motivated the lower they're getting in their weight or the more addicted they are to their behaviors. Um, and then it's not helping the client and you're putting yourself at risk. So just see it as you are helping to save their life by making that referral. And then of course they can come back to you when they're more stable. So for a treatment goal for them, we definitely need to be stabilizing their eating patterns and we want to promote intuitive eating and a health at every size approach. So no matter what their weight is, we want to um, make sure that we are not sending the message that they need to be at the society standards for what a good weight is. So this health at every size approach, so that's a, actually a book called Health at Every Size. It has some great research in it by Linda Bacon. And she says that there's really no such thing as uh, someone being overweight to the point where they need to change their behavior because of their weight. She's saying that weight itself is not an indicator of health, that the only thing that's an indicator of health is your habits. So if you're engaging in habits that are unhealthy, then that is the problem. So for example, you could be at a totally normal weight, even underweight, but if you are smoking a pack a day, that is not a healthy habit. So it's those things that we need to focus on as well as your quality of life. Um, if you are not able to go for walks around the neighborhood because your weight is so high that it prevents you from doing that, then that's also an issue. Um, and so we re really need to help you to integrate into the behaviors that you want to be able to do. But the focus should never just be on weight loss for health. Um, and then we never want to promote anything that can lead to more disordered eating, like putting them on an all organic or whole foods diet, because for these clients, they hear something like that and it becomes obsessive and gets out of hand. So we've had some family members that say, well, if she's in treatment, why are you allowing her to eat Pop-Tarts? That's not a healthy food. Why don't you just have her eat whole foods? And we have to explain that that's something that is um, going to fuel the fire of seeing the good and bad foods, that all foods need to be okay with balance, variety, and moderation. And so that is a concept you will find in the book called Intuitive Eating. And um, so also a treatment goal, we wanna eliminate the eating disorder behaviors. We wanna discover the underlying factors of the eating disorder as I talked about in the beginning. So what are they getting from it? What's the message that we need to hear from the eating disorder of how it feels like it's helping them? And we need them to learn and consistently practice alternative coping strategies, but also having them practice their communication skills. So putting that eating disorder out of a job 
by um, communicating what it is that person needs verbally and directly instead of through the eating disorder behavior. So a treatment team should consist of, like I said, a physician, a psychiatrist, a therapist, and a dietitian. And the family's role in treatment, whether that be a partner, parents, is that they should really be the ally of the treatment team. And communication is key, and they should be an integral part of the treatment, and they should never feel like they are being shamed or blamed for this person's eating disorder. As far as prevention goes, uh, families should be modeling intuitive eating, so not dieting themselves, not putting their children on diets. They should be eating together as a family as much as possible. There's a lot of studies that talk about how preventative that is for eating disorders because you're sharing your feelings, you're talking about your day, you are sitting down and able to be more in tune with your hunger sensors because you're not watching TV and you're just sitting and being more mindful. Uh, Also, there's studies about not forbidding certain foods in the house. So parents who forbid things like Oreos or highly palatable foods, that ends up actually creating a situation where that person is going to want to overeat on those foods when they do have access to them and then having more shame about having eaten them. So it doesn't actually achieve what the parents hope, which is to just avoid those foods forever. Um, They also shouldn't be using food as a reward. So that can create a situation that would lead to maybe more binge eating behaviors in the future because they are um, using food as a comfort. And also parents should not speak negatively about their bodies or about their children's bodies. Um, And we just need to be modeling body acceptance and body appreciation. And finally, for prevention, uh, to encourage all expressions of feelings in the home and to not be rewarding children for like having no feelings and So it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry as long as it's expressed in a safe way um, that those feelings are okay and that parents also validate those feelings. How can loved ones help when they have somebody in their life who has an eating disorder? So the main thing is they really need to practice validation So they have to get away from their urge to try and fix the situation. This is especially true for men, dads, husbands. They just want to fix. They want to say, you know, what are you talking about? You're so thin. Why are you saying this? Um, And they have to be okay with this idea of sitting with the vulnerability, practicing those validating statements, and um, having the patience to know that if their loved one is getting good treatment, um, there is hope that they can get better, but they can't force the situation. They can't fix it themselves. Um, It's also helpful for loved ones to attend family therapy sessions if they're invited, uh, to attend family groups if there are some, support groups, Uh, and to have their own support because eating disorders are very hard on the whole family system and it's stressful and it's overwhelming and you don't always know what to do and that's why it's so important to have your own therapist, your own support um, so that you have a place to talk about the stresses that you're going through. And in conclusion, Really, what I said about family members is also true for therapists, that we need to be able to not fall into the trap of trying to fix the client, trying to convince them that their eating disorder is terrible and it's going to kill them. And so we have to walk that fine line with being realistic about the consequences and being sure the client's aware, but not leading with that because they will feel you pulling 
for them to come to your side. And what happens when someone's trying to rip something out of your hands, you're going to want to clutch onto it more tightly because it feels really valuable that this person's trying to steal it away from you, especially this thing that has meant so much to you. So try and resist that urge to convince them that their eating disorder is terrible and instead get curious and listen to them and uh, try and understand what this eating disorder is about, how it's helping them. And I've even had an intervention of the client sitting next to their eating disorder and having the eating disorder do all of the talking to me. Um, So this kind of gestalt-ish role play where I ask the eating disorder questions and they answer in the voice of their eating disorder of what are you doing for her? What do you want me to know? What do you not want me to know? Etc. So um, I hope that you enjoyed my presentation and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. I'd love to talk to you and have a great day. Bye-bye. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.